Welcome to the Driven Woman Podcast, where we're on a mission to empower women with the mindset, tools, and strategies so that they can lead powerfully and authentically in order to make a massive impact on this world. I'm your host, Sophia Bryan. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to this interview. Um, I think that you're one of the people in Jamaica that causes us to be so overly confident about who we are. Um, you know, how many people go to what, three different countries, two different countries, and manage to thrive in that environment. And um, you're just a testament to how great Jamaican people are. So uh, this is a conversation around personal uh, branding, uh, professional development for women, as well as we'll be diving a little bit about politics um, because this is the environment and the season that we're in. But before I get into it, let me do a quick introduction of, of yourself. My of yourself. Yes, of me, yes. <laughs> I forgot this is live. <laughs> tell people who you are. Yes. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Sophia Bryan. I am a leadership and business development strategist. I am passionate about sharing with women the tools and strategies to help them to to grow and ascend into their field or their profession of choice and the driven woman podcast is one of the means through which I do just that my guest today is an associate professor of public relations and media studies uh, at Roger Williams University and she is the CEO of Hume consulting, a communications consulting, providing executive training services in personal branding, communication strategy, media relations, and public speaking. And she just has a wealth of knowledge to share. And I am so happy that she's agreed to have this conversation with me. Yes, yes. <laughs> she is a doctor. <laughs> Let me put that in there. She has a PhD in political science and she is a recognized political analyst. Uh, her political commentary has appeared on the BBC, NBC and of course, Jamaica. I mean, yeah, she's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. So, Dr. Johnson, I love to ask my guests to speak about their upbringing and how that influenced the career trajectory uh, that they ultimately went on. Mm. Well, I, I grew up in, in, in Claremont in St. Anne uh, uh, in Jamaica, as you know, we're both Jamaicans. And I went to Ferncourt High School. And by the time I was 14 years old, I already knew that I wanted a career in broadcast journalism. Really? Yeah. You're I one was, of those children. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was completely fascinated by the radio announcers. I, I remember Winston Williams. I mean, Winston, mm -hmm. uh, back in the day, was just the best thing to me on radio. He's, he was intelligent. He's, he's, I liked the, the conversations he was having. Uh, on, on television, I remember we had a black and white TV. Okay. And I was uh, watching the international news. I remember the time on JBC, Jamaica Broadcasting Corporation, before it evolved into Television Jamaica, uh, the guy who was reading the news was mm -hmm. Charles Lewin. And I remember being really fascinated. Anything I was doing, when they got to the international section, I would rush to the TV. And I remember 
Peter Arnett on uh, CNN reporting out of Beirut to the war in Lebanon. And I was hooked. I was completely drawn into this idea uh, that uh, there was a world out there and uh, people were reporting and giving information okay. on, on that world. And but originally, I really thought I wanted to be a, a, a meteorologist because I also interesting. Remember, <laughs> I also remember Roy Forrester, who used to do the weather on TVJ, and I used to watch Roy Forrester and think, "Wow, this is so amazing!" And I would try to tell my mother what the weather would be like the next day, what kind of clouds it was. <laughs> but then after a while, I realized that I actually liked just the information. It was the presenting yeah. of the information. Uh, on this fascinating medium called television that I was that I was intrigued by and not so much meteorology because I did not even pass map reading. <laughs> <laughs> so you realize that okay I need to find another route. Or exactly. <laughs> but at Fern Court I was so involved. I was involved in the debating society. Uh, I in 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 the church, the Apostolic Church of Jamaica I said poems. And so I was always involved in kind of speaking. So people probably thought I'd be a lawyer because, you know, okay. in Jamaica, they said, this, if you can chat, then they'll probably think you're going into law. But yeah. I liked information and I liked language and I, I felt I was good at it. And so at, at Ferncourt High School, I really nurtured that. The, the principal at the time was the, the head of the debating society, Sharon Kelly. And she was just this extraordinary uh, woman. Everybody feared and dreaded her but she she was also highly respected and mm. poised and, mm -hmm. and intelligent and I really I really thought that she was a definition of just a powerful woman who had presence uh, she really occupied space and yeah. a, a part of me thought wow you know and I really took her mentorship in in debating and making argument and and so and so I when I when I think of Frankfurt High School and the, the Ian Reed and some other people I used to hang out with, Dionne Winter, who was in the debating society, and Audel Cunningham eventually became a lawyer. Dionne Winter okay. uh, is a lawyer now. And these are the folks who uh, were on the debating society. Mm. Kenneth Russell. Uh, Kenneth works with the United Nations. I think he's posted in Sri Lanka. And, I, and you, you can't but help uh, to think that at the time when we were in high school, we weren't thinking so much of our future yeah. in, 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 in such a large way. But the things that we were doing, we were really nurturing our talent. Yes. And there were people around us that saw what we could offer. And I'm very, I'm very glad to have been mentored by people like Sharon Kelly and all of the colleagues I had when, when I was at Fern Court, mm, <laughs> Ooh, yeah. it was the best time. You're a kid, it was the best time. But yeah. these were young people. I remember Andrew Francis, he replaced, I thought we debated about who was meant to be on the school's challenge team. Oh. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't selected actually, it was Andrew Francis. But all of us, when we were studying for the school's challenge quiz and helping the people who were on the team to study, we paid attention to Jamaican politics, to international um, politics. We were very aware and and very um, very attuned to what's happening um, elsewhere. And for rural kids, uh, I, you know, we 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 weren't born with gold spoon in our mouth. This is a yeah. rural society uh, community that we were living in. But we were so aware of what's going on, and we were debaters, and we were uh, on the schools challenge um, uh, quiz competition, and so we were we were 
almost readying ourselves without knowing. Yes, yes. And um, it's interesting to me uh, that uh, we, despite the difference in, or I want to say, our generations, um, I was a part of the debate society um, and my team members uh, also what, went on to do very important to? Yes, I went what? to Meadowbrook High School um, oh, nice. uh, in St. Andrew, yes. Um, but for me, though, I was not a very open child. I wasn't one of those people that, um, you know, had a lot to say. And uh, I was very shy. So when I was 10 years old and someone asked me what I wanted to be, and I said I wanted to be a lawyer, and I was immediately shut down. They were like, but you're so quiet and you're so shy and, you know, that's never going to happen. And when I went to high school, uh, one the deputy head girl at the time uh, when I started, she was my neighbor. And I felt like, well, if I want to become a head girl one day, I need to be doing, I was smart enough to know that I needed to be observing this person. Yeah. And she was in debate society. And it was just something I knew I needed to work at. And, and look I at you. Sure. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you studied the law. Yeah. Uh, have you, um, are you called to the bar yet? Well, yes, I've, um, so the calling ceremony, COVID has affected that just a little bit. Um, so we're hoping that it will be the end of December. But congratulations. Uh, so you are, Thank you. you're properly a lawyer now and <laughs> yes. you have a lot to say. I'm excited. So um, some of us, we don't know from the get go and then others, you know, we know that we need to work at it. Sure. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I want to speak about the fact that you eventually left Jamaica. Um, You lived in uh, Australia. Did I get New that? Zealand first? New Zealand. I left right. Jamaica for New Zealand for the first time. Yeah. Right, for New Zealand. And I I was in uh, Washington, D.C. for an extended period. And so I know that it takes a lot to transition into a new environment. Mm-hmm. And you were studying at the time. So share with us a little bit about what that, that experience was like and what were some of the things you had to do to overcome maybe homesickness and just focus on getting the job done that you went there for? Yeah, well, even though I'd been overseas uh, and most Jamaicans, uh, or I'd say not most, but a lot of Jamaicans would, you know, you'd go abroad to Florida or wherever. But this was the first time I was uh, traveling abroad to live, to stay. And uh, the opportunity came uh, to, to, to go to New Zealand, which is on the other side of the world. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, it, it, it blew my mind, really, I, because I really thought if I go in further than the U.S., it would be England. I, mm. I'm always <laughs> fascinated by England. But uh, these were British societies anyway. New Zealand was a British society. I didn't know anything about it. The only thing I knew about New Zealand was that the, the cheese at the time <laughs> in the supermarket right? that <laughs> made in New Zealand. And so I would spend the time at RGR because by this time I was reading the news at RGR and when the opportunity presented itself and I decided to kind of run with it. So I was reading about New Zealand and I, and you know, it's, it, 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 it was an extraordinary time. It was very difficult to, to leave home, but I knew that I had to do it because uh, I remember working with Delana Franklin. Uh, mm, wow. Interesting. 
advisor to to the honorable pj patterson yeah. and you know writing speeches and and this is how i really learned uh, or really improved my communication skills mm. and speech writing skills delana was a great mentor uh can you dr johnson please let people know who pj patterson is please because you just skirted over that <laughs> as if it wasn't a big deal <laughs> Uh, well, uh, Delano Franklin, who is a lawyer, which you probably know, Delano. Delano was a chief yeah. advisor to former prime minister of Jamaica, uh, P.J. Patterson. Right. Delano was kind of mentoring me at the time. Mm -hmm. I would be called on to write speeches. And, uh, you know, when those people write speeches, you, you think, wow, if they ask you to be able to, to write it, then, then it's a compliment. But it was yes. also a learning process for me. Yes. I had to revise a lot of stuff. Uh, they marked mm. up. I remember Peter Phillips marking up a speech I wrote, ah! um, <laughs> like, you know, rang bang, take out that, <laughs> move that. And, and that was a great experience for me. And uh, Peter Phillips, the Honorable Peter Phillips, he gave me the first computer I ever owned, actually. Wow. When, I was, when I was leaving for New Zealand, because I was writing speeches in the Ministry of Security mm -hmm. for then Senator Kern Spencer. And mm -hmm. Kern had to represent Peter Phillips on a number of occasions, and they needed a speechwriter. Yes. So I was hired to write the speeches. But prior to that, Delana was already mentoring me in this process, so I kind of felt confident um, uh, to be able to do that. So when I left for, for New Zealand, it, it, it felt big. It was an enormous yeah. thing to do because yeah. um, you had to, I had to leave my, my mother. And when she had this look on her face, at the airport that I would never forget. It was, mm. it, it was this pain. And, and we, I, we were, I was going to a society that she didn't know, I didn't know. Uh, it was far away. I had to take four aircrafts uh, to get wow. there. And right. so it, it must have been really difficult for her as well. Mm. But I knew that I had to do it. Uh, to, to make progress, you have to change places sometimes and you have to change your priorities yeah you, you don't make progress by standing still and so I knew even though it was difficult it was emotionally draining that it was something that I needed to do if I wanted to to carry on and to to advance yeah. to the next level of my of my life and my career even though at the time I didn't know what that would look like because yeah. leaving journalism was also leaving something that I loved mm. and I knew and I was comfortable in to pursue uh, political science. I didn't pursue it to be a politician. I probably pursued it to be a better uh, political uh, communicator, okay. which at the time I was clearly evolving into. But New yes. Zealand was a radically different society. It is mm. a British society. It's, it's, it, 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 it reveres England in a way that mm. I wasn't accustomed to. Uh, okay. The New Zealanders are very internal. Uh, you don't get to, to know them immediately you know jamaicans we okay. embrace people immediately we're like oh, yes welcome come yes. <laughs> uh, uh the, the, they don't operate in that way but my immediate supervisor was an indian woman from kerala in india and all of the other people in the political science department were males hmm. and, um it was interesting uh priya and i she was my supervisor and a professor there she and i were the only women of color and international the rest interesting of the so were, it was like two layers yeah. or two hurdles that you had to overcome yeah. you're foreign to this society yeah. and then 
you know, that um, that perception, I, I imagine that, you know, New Zealanders would have for persons of color, um, you would have had to overcome that element as well. Yeah, I mean, but you, when you grew up in Jamaica, you you there's a collective confidence about the Jamaican yes. people that uh, it bolsters you when yeah. you're in a foreign context. I think individuals, individually, Jamaicans are not as confident as we pre- pretend to be. But collectively, we are imbued with with the sense of we, we we have arrived and we can do this. And and I think that that kind of cultural upbringing really helped me in New Zealand because I came in confident. I, yes. I knew who I was and I knew what 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 value I could bring to the table. So even though our department had a lot of older males from across Europe, uh, Ireland, Scotland, England, Amsterdam. Uh, uh, these were people who Jamaica wasn't unknown to them. Uh, West Indies cricket in the, in the sense of the 1980s when, when West, Indies, West Indies cricketers were the top of the world, they would have played in Australia and New Zealand. So, and then uh, there was Jamaican-ness known for Bob Marley and reggae who had really, uh, Marley himself had really infiltrated New Zealand and, and the indigenous Maori people respected and, mm-hmm. and regarded him largely. In fact, their, their Waitangi Day, which is the day that they celebrate getting their own treaty and ownership, protectorship over the land in New Zealand is February 6th, same day as Bob Marley's birthday. Mm-hmm. And so Bob Marley was part of their helping to, to overcome oppression. And so... Uh, Jamaica was already known. So you kind of step into this identity, which was already there. But as as an individual, uh, you have to know that you have value. And when you enter a room, then you are not inferior. Uh, You are not less than. And I never felt, I never thought, they never treated me that way, but I never felt that I was less than uh, even though I've met friends who were Africans mm. who were studying for their masters or PhDs who took a different approach to it, who felt yeah. kind of different, even though I can't say that I observed racism towards me or uh, overtly towards them, but the way they entered the environment mm. was different from how even Professor Lloyd Waller and I, he was there before me, we kind of took over. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we, yeah. I mean, Jamaicans have arrived and, and, and we kind of took that confidence and, and the power of who we are as a country uh, into those foreign spaces. And I think it worked for me. Yeah. Um, um, this is not to say that I didn't suffer the first six months. I was homesick. I, yeah. I missed everything about Jamaica. I, 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 I wasn't adjusting in the sense that I was focused on the difference yeah. Until my supervisor told me to surrender, you know, mm. surrender to your environment. Uh, yeah. This is not Jamaica, she said. Yeah. And once I was able to surrender, yeah. and it literally surrender meant <gasps> exhaling mm-hmm. and occupying New Zealand. And once I did that, it was the best place. It's mm. still one of the, I call it my spiritual home. I felt that I, I, I was in my 20s. I think I came of age in New Zealand in so yeah. many ways. So I always, always adore uh, New Zealand. I remember a, uh, a part of when we spoke last year, when I did the consultation with you, one of the things that came up was that 
you said to me that, Sophia, you can't expect people to just look at you and know who you are. You can't expect that they're going to do the digging to find out what your qualities are and why you're so terrific. And, and so I say that to segue into personal branding because studying, doing journalism and branding, you know, I can, I can see the connection there. But then you studied uh, politics. And so how did that journey into recognizing or owning your expertise as a personal branding strategist? Uh, what led to that? And how were you able to sort of pivot in a sense? Because you are not actually teaching politics, you're actually teaching branding. And then you also went on to write a book about branding. So how did you make that pivot? Um, and why are you so passionate about that area? You know, um, in Jamaica, I was a hustler. I, I was, I had a job. My first job out of university was with the GIS uh, television. I was hosting Jamaica Magazine. And uh, that's another story I was in. <laughs> but during that time, when I was a student at the UWI, I'd met Tony Rebel and entertainer Tony Rebel at a protest march, actually. Really? We, that's so interesting. <laughs> we were, the student guild was protesting the, the, the shipment of, of plutonium through Caribbean waters. Okay. And at the time, we thought, wow, they're coming to dump their crap in yeah. the Caribbean waters. And we felt very insulted about that. And as students at the UWI, there's always that ferment on campus. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a huge part of it. And so we decided at the time that were we to invite entertainers to our protest, then it would get the kind of attention. Because, you know, they're, they're public figures, they're celebrities. So, so we could get national attention yeah. for this protest. Tony Rebel agreed to it. Ibo Cooper, mm -hmm. uh, Bujabantan uh, came. Uh, there were a number of artists who were there. And I remember Bujabantan had the bullhorn and they were walking along the streets. No plutonium, blow your wow. horn. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And so um, because I was helping with the organization of it, I was interacting with a couple of the artists. And I remember Tony Rebel saying to me, my ear, so you can't write. <laughs> and I need somebody to get my artist in the newspaper. In extraordinary. Oh, look at that. Oh, you weren't even trying. It was social media, but you see, Tony Rebel is family with, with Seymour Mullings, who was the, the MP in my constituency, you see, mm. so, so there was this uh, linkage and everybody kind of, yeah. um, uh, kind of knew Tony Rebel. So, so when he needed that person, I, I clearly was right there and I said, yes, you know, I, I could do that. That time I didn't know anything about a brand of marketing. Mm. I, didn't know, yeah. I didn't know anything about imaging, but what, what I knew about was communication and I yeah. knew how to get, uh, I know what reporters are looking for and I knew how to get their, 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 their news and their image in the, in the newspaper. And that time we didn't even meet um, uh, Queen Africa until way later, maybe a few years later, uh, we saw Africa mm -hmm. at, an, at an event in Montego Bay. And so I, I happened to write the first bio Queen Africa ever wow, had. Look at that. I wrote it and uh, part of it was looking at the artists on the label at the time. Mm -hmm. And so writing up their bio meant finding out who they are. Mm -hmm. And when I was working with Tony Rebel, I, I, I said, but, but besides an artist, what are you? Mm -hmm. And if you're running the show, you have to see the show as part of your 
your brand is part of the, the value that you're offering in entertainment because he was a reluctant promoter and a reluctant businessman because he really just wanted to focus on his career as an artist. Yeah, exactly. But it said that beyond your artistry, can yeah. you see it as a breath? Can you see what else can you contribute to the Jamaican society and to the cultural landscape in Jamaica. So I was part of the reimagining and the building of Rebel Salute as a, as a product and, and the, 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 the definition of what it is and what it can be. And uh, about Queen Africa, uh, Sugar Black and Le Bankele were a couple of other artists as well. Um, I remember writing a bio for this Jamison who you know is quite popular as well that these are people who are in music, they're rasters, but you have to be able to, to communicate what yeah. you are, why are you doing this music? Who are you and what value are you exactly. offering? And it was working with, with Tony mm-hmm. Rebel, Rebel Salute, and all of those younger artists on his label that I really started to pay attention to impressions and the fact mm-hmm. that people do make impressions. And uh, when I became a speech writer for Kern Spencer and was helping out uh, Basil Waite when he was opposition spokesman in education. These were young people, young mm-hmm. senators who were trying to raise their profile and to make an impact yeah. in the Jamaican society. So it's not just about the content of the speeches. It was about them as well. Yes. Uh, and I remember one time I, I turned up to read the news at RGR and a colleague of mine said, so, I mean, yeah, write the speech for Kern, but you can't teach him for talk to. <laughs> and I thought, and I thought I never, that wasn't what I was paid for. I was paid to write the speech, not to work on their brand image or how they yeah. present the information. But I realized what you can't do one and not do the other. Yep. Uh, you mm-hmm. can't write this without knowing who the messenger is and how the messenger is being perceived and what is the audience that the messenger wants to reach and how do we secure the kind of image that you want within this particular Mm. marketplace. And that was the evolution of branding. We weren't calling it personal branding. We're probably saying public relations or image, but personal branding is so much more than brand marketing to realize. So, People who say they're doing, a lot of people say they're doing personal branding, but what they're actually doing is brand marketing. Yes. Focusing on the superficial element of of creating an image on social media, which for me, that should be the end of the process. Exactly. That can't be the beginning of it. Yeah. It needs to be having an understanding of self. Who am I? And ensuring that translates to whatever is being put out there, because sometimes, uh, um, and I'm going to use a political example. So in the, the campaigns that recently ended, yeah. uh, there was a, we had this dub excitement, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a particular candidate that a dub was produced for that he didn't even know the dub was being produced. And he was in a bind because a reporter asked him about it. And so, I mean, you have a team around you uh, but, you know, who are you? What is this person? You know, if you have a more calm disposition, then you want your team to also ensure that that calm disposition, you know, more, uh, I want to say conservative or um, you want that to be translated into the but things there, that are being produced. Yeah, but, but you know, there are two things that you're saying here. One, you're saying that uh, the, the client needs to know what's going on. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But not all the time. I mean, I've worked with public figures. Uh, they trust you to, to handle their messaging and their mm-hmm. brand. 
not every time I wrote a media release for Tony Rebel that I went to him mm-hmm. and say, um, oh, this is what I'm going to write. Can you approve it? If I, if I crafted a quotation, I want to know that it is his voice and yes. something that he wants to say. So that's the only th- time I would say, hey, Tony, what do you think about this? Uh, mm-hmm. This is something that you would say. Because I, I, you have to, you're, you're literally putting words in, in, in people's mouth. Mm-hmm. And so you'll want to make sure that the words that are being put out is, is representative of yeah. the individual and not just yeah. you. Yeah. But the team doesn't, you don't need to approve everything the team is doing. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Second, yeah. second, with regard to the to the dub plate and political messaging, I believe that was a distraction. Uh, mm. I, 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 I think that it's a nice part of the evolution yeah. of, our, of our campaigning and yeah. I'm all for political marketing. Yeah. But for me, a dub plate has to be attendant to a core message. Mm-hmm. If your core message of the campaign is strong, then the dub plate reinforces that and it's mm-hmm. fun, but yeah. the dub plate cannot replace the message. Yeah. And that okay. was my problem with yeah. this particular campaign. I remember years yeah. ago uh, when PJ Patterson was campaigning, there was log on to progress and that was a theme or the slogan of the campaign. And there was this song, this... this um, That's playing in my goes. mind currently. <laughs> It was so much fun. I mean, kids were dancing to it. It was the jingle of the campaign. But it was attendant to a message about logging on to the infrastructural development which he had started and which he believed that infrastructural development was a pathway to to national development and growing the economy. And that was already... um, uh, There was nobody... There's nobody who could say that in the PJ's idea of infrastructure and infrastructure development and its importance to growing the economy was not clear and yeah. it wasn't something. In fact, people said, as a critique, people said, well, our uncle road them about, you know, but, but it was more than road. Mm. It, was, it was part of the, of the idea that if you build the infrastructure, then you're, this, is, this is how you grow the economy yeah. as well. Yeah. But the song... The song was attendant to that. The song was not meant to replace that. Exactly, yeah. And so it, it was fun. People had a good time. But, I, you know, the core messaging was still sprinkled in there. You know, it's interesting that sometimes as we evolve and as we grow, some of the things of the past, sometimes it's important to actually lean in on them and learn from those examples um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think campaigns are evolving though. You know, we are, we're, we're operating yeah. in a digital environment. And so campaigns since 2008, when Barack Obama really used social media effectively, yeah. every campaign around the world has sought to use digital media and social yeah. media to, to, to organize their message and their, and their, and their image. But social media only reaches certain segments of the population. That is Every, true. Everybody may be on Facebook in yeah. small rural hamlets in Jamaica. They may be on Facebook, but they may not be paying attention to, yes. to highfalutin political mm. messages. Yes. So you still have to combine the traditional sources of, of political marketing alongside the, the more modern uh, aspects because you need to reach the audience where they are. Yes. And that is why branding is so significant, personal branding, because... If, if, if you have a team and they're working on your campaign, that's, that's great. But now with digital media where everybody's their own brand, you do need to ensure that what you're offering as an individual is resonant yeah. and, and, and people notice 
the value that you're 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 bringing and you're also setting yourself apart mm-hmm. uh, because it's not just yes there is a team of PNP and GLP people, but how do you stand out? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, on that note, um, it is Driven Woman, and I know that I, I even want to take the conversation outside of uh, politics in the sense of public representation, but I also want to make that connection between workplace politics, right? <clears throat> um, people get, you know, people feel uncomfortable with that phrase, but I personally think it's a reality that we can't escape. What are some of the things that uh, women professionals who want to ascend, uh, who want to get that big job that requires them leading, uh, people seeing them, people looking up to them, them making big decisions? What are some of the things they need to be doing with their personal brand so that people take them seriously and see them as an actual contender? There, there, there are a couple of things. They, they. I always talk about this uh, lady, Ava. I've created this fictional character called Ava. And Ava means action, uh, visibility, and I I can't remember what the the other A was right now. I'm losing it. But one of the things I realized from doing personal branding over the years is that uh, there are some women who they do all the work. They're excellent at what they do. They, they sit quietly in the background. They're not seeking attention. Uh, you, they're reliable. They're hardworking. Mm-hmm. They deliver. Uh, but they're not visible. Right? Yeah. They think that their work will speak for them. There's a time that it probably would, but these days it doesn't. Then there are the people who are visible. They're on social media. Every time they move, they take a photo of it. Yeah. And you can't get a sense. You, you see them mm. all the time, but you can't get a sense of what value they're bringing. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know what they're about. You don't yeah. know what their talent is. And you, you think, okay, well, there is something that's wrong with this picture too. Mm-hmm. Because visibility yes. is like the, the getting the icing, but you don't get the cake, mm. you know? And so what I've always advised uh, women to do is that, there has to be, you don't have to be the loudest in the room, yeah. but you can't be in the background. You can't be so quiet that nobody knows what your value is. You do have to, if you want, for example, to excel in your workplace or in your environment, then you do have to put your hand up for something. You do have to say, okay, I, I will lead this yeah. meeting. I will lead this, this project. I will do this presentation. Uh, you, you, you can't simply just work a part of that team because that means that you may leave the room and people don't even remember that you were there. So part of it is showing up. Yes. And being, being visible in the sense of not fake visibility, but showing up, being visible about the thing that you're doing. For some people who feel like the people in their workplace already has a sense of them, which is not positive. They don't think the people realize what their value is. I think it's your responsibility to, to let them see your value. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes it's not inside there that you're going to do it. Sometimes you have to go out there, contribute to the community in some way write a column for the newspaper, um, write an article on LinkedIn, start tweeting about the things that you know about and the things that you're passionate about and gain traction out there because 
um, inside, it's, it's, more, it's the most difficult thing to rebrand yourself uh, among the people or the marketplace mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Are already has made up their mind yeah. uh, about you. So it takes a while for them to, to shift. And sometimes you have to ignore the noise and go over there and do your thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, and I came out of a process where I was a journalist. I was a journalist who, who so happened to, to do consulting work with some politicians and some entertainers. Uh, and if you, if, if you talk to me right now, some of them would probably say, oh, uh, it's Hume. Uh, who used to do that and used to do that? Uh, so they still see mm-hmm. me in, in this box but that's not how I see myself. And I'm, I'm hoping that based on what I've done over the last few years, that you would have seen that my evolution is, can't be where you can't, you can't now still see me as you did because all the evidence suggests otherwise. Yes. And I want women to understand that it's don't wait for people to recognize you and tap you on the shoulder. Nobody's going to do that. Uh, you need to show value. So that sometimes you're seeking the opportunity here, but that's over there is where it comes because you're, you're ignoring the noise, you're offering value and you're trying to be at least a little bit visible in in doing so. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can't sit in the background and expect that somebody is going to see your value. Uh, They, it has to be seen in some respects. It doesn't have to be the floodlight it doesn't have to be the spotlight. Not everybody likes that, but it has to be at least a, a build an awareness that this is your talent, this is your this is your skill, this is what you can bring to the table. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I need to <laughs> because uh, so well put. Um, I I I understand that argument where you say, you know, persons will have this perception of you. And then as you seek to make a change, as you seek to evolve, they're like, but it's just, it's it's so difficult for them to accept that you have evolved out of that perception or that box that they had placed you in. And I must say, it's a very difficult feeling to contend with especially when you are the type of person that you're not confrontational or you don't like conflict. You want people to feel comfortable. Uh, But the reality is sometimes people are going to get uncomfortable and you can't do anything about that, you know? And and there's this argument that as women, we don't owe anybody any obligation to look a certain type of way or to look decent and or to, you know, push out ourselves. The work should speak for itself. And for me personally, every single thing about this world says that that way of thinking is not true. You don't have to be, you know, glammed up or supermodel. You don't have to be, you know, eloquent and have the best grammar ever. Oh, say that again. Speak in your language. Yes. And do it confidently and just recognize that this is who I am. I worked, you know? with, a, I worked with a lady last year who is a teacher uh, in Jamaica. And she said that she, she has a stutter and mm-hmm. every time she does an interview or she gets up to speak, then she hears all of the things that people have always said that she now yeah. come out to nothing. And she hears that in her, in her mind and she's afraid to speak because uh, she says the English language was not 
you know, is not coming out the way that she wanted it to come out and she was questioning herself. And as a result, she wasn't communicating herself mm. in a way that gave her the jobs that she wanted. And so she came to me for public speaking training. And I said to her that I really don't think it's public speaking you need. I think what you need is personal branding. If we, if we can figure out what value you're bringing to the table, and if you can manage to build your confidence enough to speak the way you speak, this is Jamaica, speak the way you speak, people yes. understand you, then you, I think you're going to have different results. And I remember yeah. her writing to me to tell me that um, she went, this was the first time she had gone on an interview since we did the thing, and she had had three job offers. And it was up to her now to choose mm. one of the jobs and she needed. I mean, I thought, wow, yeah. wow, because she started to just own her voice, you know? and own what she could bring to the table. So I don't have interview sessions where I, I train you how to answer a question, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I, I talk to you about what are your core competencies? You know, what do you bring to the table and how do you bring it? How do you do it? What is the value that you bring to the table? What are you good at? What makes you different? What makes you stand out in the industry that you're in? So that when you go for an interview, then it's not an interrogation where you're yes. trying to figure out, hopefully you can answer, find the right words. <laughs> no, you have a conversation now yeah. about who you are, you yeah. know? Because you're not telling any lies. It's not something that you made up. It's something that you, you, you're really talking about you and the value that you bring to the table. And that I've, I've achieved a lot of success by yeah. just helping people to shift their, their, their paradigm. And I find that when you approach interviews from that perspective, you're a more engaging candidate. Because I definitely think that the role I'm in now, um, a lot of it me being selected was because I was able to demonstrate that I'd be a great fit. And I own some of the insecurities I had and, you know, said, you know, some of these insecurities I have about, you know, the perception that people may have of women from the inner city. This is a part of my drive. And, and I remember I, when we had that, that, that personal branding session with you, I think I was meeting you um, in person for the first time. Mm -hmm. And we did talk about owning your story. Yeah. You, know, mm -hmm. you were mm -hmm. from the inner city and you did have some reservations about yeah. how that will play. Yeah, uh, And yes, it does play in a, in a very complex way in Jamaica. But I remember at the end of it, you were more willing to yeah. own. Yes, you're from the inner city. So mm -hmm. what? Yeah. I mean, look at you now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I, I, I am going to cut out that segment specifically and just have that because more women <laughs> need to hear it. More people need to hear it. It's not even about the qualifications sometimes it's how do you perceive yourself and, and taking responsibility to share that with the world. Um, wow. So ah, I can't believe we're, we're going on and going on. Um, I can't let you leave without speaking about your book. Um, you've written several books. Um, I saw, you know, of course you're an academic, but speak to us a little bit about your personal branding book where persons can get it. Um, um, okay, my brand new book is available at Amazon.com uh, right mm -hmm. now. Uh, I do have a couple other books. I, I hardly talk about that. <laughs> oh, my first book was on civil society in Jamaica. It's, 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 it's a book, it's, it, to me, it's my most seminal work. 
and the book on brand Jamaica. Yeah. Um, we're coming to Jamaica next year. It was supposed to be this summer and COVID had other plans. Uh, but uh, we're going to launch this book, Dr. Camille, Gentle Spirit, and I, we okay. wrote an edited volume on Jamaica's international image. And that's the first mm -hmm. ever um, scholarly look at the brand image of a Caribbean state. And we look forward to kind of amplifying the conversation about that uh, in Jamaica next year. And yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So um, my penultimate question. So I can't let you, I feel like we need to do a part two, but um, I want to. You, it's okay to continue and then you can, you can edit or cut. Okay. All right. So um, your journey into being a, an associate professor in Rhode Island how did you pull that off? God, I don't feel like that's a success story. <laughs> really? Oh, <laughs> uh, all right. I'm, this is the only thing bad I'll say about Rhode Island for today. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Let me just say that. Um, I, had no, I had no intentions of being a professor. I, I'm not a teacher. We've had this conversation before. My mother is a teacher. I'm not a teacher. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm fundamentally not. Uh, uh, People like this notion that they're educators. I'm not. It's not a word I want to use to describe myself. I do educate in a way that um, people get a lot of value from me, but I'm not intentionally trying to, to, to brand myself as an educator. Okay. No, I'm a journalist, and, and I like information. I like knowledge. I like, I like learning. I like the scholarship I'm doing, so I'm definitely a scholar because I've always liked politics. I always understand it, and I always wanted to learn more about how society mm -hmm. organizes itself and how Jamaica can actually be organized better and be run. Uh, the, the governance challenges we have is something that is always of concern. That's what my research uh, is about. So when I was finishing my PhD, I went through really a crisis of confidence. Mm. That was a career crisis. I never thought beyond the, the four and a half years. I, I, I wasn't thinking of what I'm going to do next. I, I probably thought at one point it would be nice to work with the United Nations. Yeah. You know, I, if you're studying politics and all of that, you're like, and there were friends I had from Africa, a friend from Sierra Leone. He would come into my office in New Zealand and he would say, we're applying to the UN. And now he works with the UN. He, his first job was in Pristina in Kosovo. And I think he's somewhere in the African Union mm. now. And so we could have been on the same trajectory. But my supervisor was advising me at the time to spend some time to build credibility Okay. around build my expertise in my field mm, okay. if it was going to be governance and civil society it was a, a job in academia was an opportunity to publish papers write books and establish yourself as an expert in your field and that was the 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 clincher for me because mm -hmm. prior to that when they suggested uh, academic jobs I said no no flatly no I said I did not want to be institutionalized. I, I had, um, not that I didn't have regard for those who were academics. Yeah. I, I, I had great mentors like Barry Chavans who supervised my master's thesis and really? Trevor Monroe. Okay. And, okay. Trevor, and, Trevor, and Trevor Monroe actually encouraged me to do a PhD after I did my, my master's thesis on election observation uh, in the Caribbean. And so, yes, I liked that kind of conversation. And I was part of um, PJ Patterson's Youth Advisory Council, the PMAC. So that kind of conversation I knew I could contribute to. And the, the scholarship was something that, yes, I could do. But the teaching bit, 
Mm. Nah. <laughs> uh, but uh, when you're in academia, that's part of the sacrifice as well. You do have to teach. And I do like my interaction with my students. I do like the subjects um, teaching, but I could easily stop doing it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not so attracted. You know when people say they get this reward from teaching, don't you feel so good? I'm like, no, no. Mm-hmm. No, I don't get, I don't feel that. <laughs> I like that they're succeeding. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like that they understand what I'm trying to do and where I'm trying to help them to go. But uh, I'm not excited for a new semester. I'm never excited to like, wow, yeah. <laughs> no, that's not me. It's pretty perfunctory uh, for me. But my subject matter is media and media studies. Uh, I talk about politics and the media. Those things are critical. My students are... Uh, the majority of them are white Americans. Um, unfortunately, I've had maybe about 10 black students in the in wow. years. And, and they vote. Uh, the, the youth vote is so important. Yeah. And I want them to understand that the information coming at them, uh, they, they have to interrogate it, not yeah. just take it at face value. And so those are important conversations, especially where America is right now. Yeah. So I see myself as a black woman standing yes. in front of for 10 years in this white majority environment all the time. My presence alone is an education. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're disrupt. So. I imagine you're disrupting so many things for them when they enter your classroom. Absolutely. This dark skinned woman, Caribbean, so <laughs> well poised and well spoken, not speaking loudly to me. You know, so culture, they're like, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't understand this. The media is saying black women are this, but then this is in front of me. I can't handle it. So <laughs> it's interesting you put it that way. But I'm sure when I turn up, you know, especially freshman students who haven't met me before, I'm sure it probably blows their mind a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jamaica, I, I always have to say that uh, we, we arrive as Jamaicans confident and mm-hmm. we arrive knowing that we can offer value and we don't apologize for our presence. And, and I'm grateful always for growing up in Jamaica. I mean, growing up in Jamaica is so rough. It's such a coarse environment sometimes. <laughs> but it's, but it's been, it, there are blessings. It toughens to it. you. It toughens you and it gives you that, that hardcore backbone that makes you able to be so resilient and mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that things don't go wrong but yeah. it gives you that fighting spirit and yeah and, definitely because I, I yeah um because I can remember um I definitely agree with that comment about the fighting spirit I can remember when I was uh as a fellow in DC um DC is interestingly called chocolate city but the part of DC <laughs> I was in, there was no chocolate, uh, right? <laughs> there was none. And so when I went into certain spaces, because um, I was always interested in politics, and so I'd always find events around leadership. Course, interestingly, my, yeah, interestingly, my landlord uh, was very active in community politics. And so I, you know, I asked him to take me along with him, the Jewish guy. Uh, he'd take me along and I'd go into meetings and they'd ask me to be like the, the spokesperson for the group. And then he'd be like, Sophia, <laughs> what's going on here? And so um, I think a lot of uh, persons of color, they, they were just very surprised. And um, because the, the, there's this barrier that's there, um, I think, 
um, in terms of confidence that our sister, yeah. brothers and sisters don't have. And so I'm happy that I grew up in Jamaica True. where I wasn't clouded by the barrier, so to speak. But, you know, you know, yeah, I understand completely what you're saying, because we do take a different approach than the African-Americans. But I I sympathize because the African-Americans experience with 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 slavery and their experience fighting slavery was different from ours. I think at some point the plant is left. And yes, we had the the descendants of the planter class who still control Jamaica, and they they, they are part of the definition of Jamaica, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And but also the black majority in Jamaica, we actually fought for yeah, our freedom, yeah. and and there was a decolonization movement that we we still going through. And I think that gives us a lot of confidence. The black Mm -hmm. majority has a lot more confidence because of how our society evolved. How the African-Americans evolved. I mean, look at 2020, still fighting for rights and for justice. We are still fighting for rights and justice, granted. Uh, But I think think we're more empowered. I Mm -hmm. I think we were built with a lot more confidence in who we are. We have a lot more way to go because the reason I said that individually we're not confident, we're not a confident people. We love to say that we're confident because I think collectively we're a confident culture. And the things that we've been able to accomplish in the world has to be because we're collectively confident. But I think that individually there's so much that that uh, we're not confident about. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I even though think we like education, we, we, we love to see people graduate and say, yeah, they're graduating, but I don't think we value education. I don't think we value it in the way that a society should, should want to learn. It should mm-hmm. want to upskill. It should want to develop its people. And I think that we're way behind where that yeah. is concerned. There's mm-hmm. no priority on upskilling. There's a digital economy that's coming and it's here. And Jamaica is like maybe 50 years yeah. behind. Yeah, um, we're still that. And, mm-hmm. and that to me is a disappointment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm still. I feel very uneasy about the fact that in 2020 you still have people saying, "Oh, I'm the first person in my family to go to college." I, you know, I feel. I'm. I'm concerned about that, um, and I'm. I'm very concerned about the fact that um, there are still a, a lot of young people still go through a lot of struggle to even access education and access the digital space, um, you know, more persons. But the education doesn't have to be a degree. Well, definitely not. Definitely not. I I have so many friends who haven't gone to college. You don't have to Mm -hmm. go to college. I mean, mean, to me, business and entrepreneurship was a great deficit Mm -hmm. in education. I I think that they should have been teaching me to sell, sell myself, sell stuff, do things to to earn your own keep. And, you know, a liberal arts education can can bring you so far and no more. Yeah, definitely. That's that's definitely something to think. Yeah. Skills training is to me uh, the way to go. Uh, You don't have to go up to UA. Uh, People should be be learning the stock market, learning sales, learning business, learning entrepreneurship, learning technology, coding, uh, innovation. Uh, those are the skills that are going to be needed in a, in a new economy, not history major. <laughs> you know, 
you know, <laughs> although we need to know our history as well. But I'm just saying that it shouldn't be the case that we are encouraging people to all go to UAE. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, because um, the missing element is how do I translate whatever I've learned at the tertiary level to actually provide advance for myself your exactly. and, and family. Advance your life and advance yeah. your purpose. That's yeah. a major missing piece. All right, Hume. So I, my, I said, I'm, I keep saying last question. Lord. <laughs> um, you sent me a number of questions. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, the list, yeah, quite so many. Um <laughs> Um, at this stage in your life, uh, Dr. Johnson, um, you know, I, I would say I would say that you're an accomplished person. I know you may want to argue with me about that. Um, but what keeps you going in terms of always um, advancing yourself, building yourself up, learning more? You know, what motivates you to keep on learning and keep keep on being a better version of yourself? I, I just think that there's one life and we get this one body and this this finite uh, amount of time. And I believe that it's important to do something with it. You know, I believe in always evolving as an individual. And I think that we should be lifelong learners. I There are so many things. Uh, there are so many books on my bookshelf, which I haven't read yet, <laughs> that I'd, I'd really wish I had the time to do. And for me, I want to end my life empty. I want to feel like I've done it. I have contributed to the community around me, that mm. I have contributed to the other person, that I have become fully myself. Because every year I, I, I make a resolution and I actually, actually make an effort to, to stick to it. What do I want to do this year? And one year it was listening because I felt I was yapping away too much and you know, when you're waiting to speak rather than listening to what the other person mm -hmm. said, I, I became more self-aware. And my entire year, I spent more listening. And so when my friends would be on the phone, they're like, are you there? Hello. <laughs> I'm like, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to listen. And there are other moments when it was something more definitive. Mm -hmm. I, last year, I said, I'd love to amplify my voice in, in, in top tier uh, publications in the United States. And that was something I actively uh, set out to do. And it became a success quicker than mm -hmm. I thought. And so it tells me that sometimes we just need to get out of our own way. Yeah. And uh, sometimes you're going to do something and you do have fear. And people think that confident people don't have fear. Confident mm -hmm. people probably have the most fear because they are the ones always stepping out of their comfort zone and say, what's next? And I have friends. I have had examples of this, uh, Lorna Lewis, I don't know if she's watching this, but Lorna Lewis, I don't think Lorna even went to college, uh, maybe a vocational institution. Mm -hmm. And Lorna is one of the go-getters that have always been around growing mm -hmm. up. She's always, always a serial entrepreneur, always doing something new. And, and I see my mother as a serial entrepreneur as well, always trying something, always evolving. She she did her CXCs when she was 60. I mean, going up to Ferncourt High School to take evening classes with 16-year-olds as a 60-year-old woman is extraordinary. And so I grew up in an environment where people are always trying to evolve and to do something else and to want their life to be better and to contribute to their family, to contribute to their community, to do more, to feel better about themselves, to achieve. And I think that that is what, I mean, Chadwick Boseman was talking about it the other day about there is a reason that we are in this 
life in this moment? So how do you give to this moment that you're in? The, the, the life that you're leading and the moment that you're in, in this life, um, how do you give yourself to the moment? Do you just let the day pass yeah. by, your life pass by, or do you occupy the moment, meet yeah. the moment? You know, Michelle mm -hmm. Obama uh, calls it meeting the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that my responsibility to myself is to meet that moment and to mm -hmm. kind of help other people to find their way. Yeah. Is there a personal motto or mantra that you live by? There's several. Uh, I always have at the end of my email uh, something that Oprah said one time, that excellence is not about um, competing with others. It's not about outperforming others. Mm -hmm. It was about um, knowing how far you can go through excitement, through curiosity, you know. And I really, I really think that's a definition. I'm not trying to compete with people. I, I really don't look what you're doing. I'm happy for you. I, I don't get jealous. I, I, I'm curious about where I can go. And I focus on being in my lane and trying to, to evolve as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I, I, I also think a lot about this expression that Jamaicans have, and I reject it. It's... it's be patient, they love to say, wait, wait, it will happen. I was never patient. That's my biggest um, weakness, I think. I've never been patient. I, I think that you can't wait for something to just happen. Yeah. I think you definitely have to, to go out and do it and make it happen. You don't stumble into your future. It's, it doesn't just happen. It's something, it's a harvest of choices yeah. that you make. And it's the things that you're doing because you look at the clock, the future is now because mm -hmm. it's, it's moving. Yeah, it's yeah. It, the time is coming. And so if you think of time in that, in that way, then you have to do what you have to do right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. <clears throat> uh, so my closing question to you is what keeps you driven? <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me what keeps me happy. What keeps me happy? <laughs> I think I just answered that, though. I think I yes. just answered that. In terms yeah. of what keeps me driven, I think I just answered that because I, I think I have a responsibility to myself to become fully actualized. Yeah. When I was 21 years old, my, my best friend and I were talking about self-actualization. We had just learned the expression. Wow. And we thought when we were 40 and we thought that being 40 was going to be, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're over 40 and we're like, gee. But we had this vision of self-actualization. We were always talking about what we needed to do next and kind of challenge each other uh, to get there and to find uh, what our purpose is. And I remember Tony Rebel gave me a gift uh, for my birthday one year. And it was a, a book by Ian Levanzant. I can't remember. Acts of Faith. Mm. Acts of Faith. And I had it. I lost it. Uh, my friend Ingrid bought another copy because she knew I was so attached to it. She bought another copy because everything about it um, was resonated with me because I was always about uh, evolving as a person, not so much as a professional, but as a person as well. And uh, being driven is part of is part of being 
understanding that it is you have to be in the driver's seat. Yes. It's like getting into the driver's seat of your career, not in the back seat where somebody's driving it or you're expecting it to go, you're in a bus and you're expecting to, to just be taken along, but getting into the driver's seat where you are in charge and you're becoming more intentional about what you are about. And one of the best advice that I got when I was 17 was from Wycliffe Bennett, my voice and speech teacher, who, who, who had sent me out of the room several times and I didn't know what I was doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I come from country. I remember Miss Paulette did met the dress when we wear that day. <laughs> the dressmaker around the road and met the dress. And I was not confident. Lisa Hannah was in the room, Simone Clark, all of these uptown people. And I was, I didn't know them. I didn't know. I was very intimidated, if you can believe that. Mm. And Mr. Bennett kept sending me out of the room. Go, I'll come back in. And one time I said, what? What am I doing? And he said, you're apologizing for your presence. Mm. Go back out, come back in and occupy space. And I'm telling you, that sit with me for my entire life. Because I I didn't start to occupy space the next minute. But over the next um, decades of my life, I would say that I, I began to occupy space more and more, knowing it's about knowing who you are, standing as if you belong, walking in a room as if you belong there, yeah. not feeling, not, not curling back, but being, knowing that you offer value and owning that value. And I think I've been occupying space since that time. And I would, I would encourage women, uh, especially black women, to find their voice yes. uh, and occupy space. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for having this conversation with me. So many lessons um, learned. And, and I'm happy that you are so candid and so open. And... Um, I look forward to editing this conversation. I think I need to be doing more video. I feel like somehow it opens up the conversation a little bit more. So I feel like I might be doing that more going forward for sure. Thank you so much, Dr. John. No worries, my darling. It is such a pleasure. And I'm I'm so glad that you're taking the branding lessons that we did together. (laughs) And you are running with it. You're finding your voice. You're not apologizing for coming from the inner city. You're owning that as part yeah. of your story. Every story needs tension. Yeah. And everybody has vulnerabilities. Yeah. And you're owning that as part of your strength. Yeah. And I like yeah. that. And I, and I applaud you. And I wish you all the best in whatever you do in this life. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven Woman podcast. Be sure to head over to sophiabryan.com and check out my free resources tab. I love hearing from you. So my DMs are open and you can follow me at underscore Sophia Bryan and Sophia Bryan JA on Instagram and Twitter respectively. Follow the show at Driven Woman Podcast on Twitter and on Instagram. Looking forward to hearing from you and looking forward to receiving your feedback. Until next time, stay driven.